Welcome back, everybody, to the Scarlet Thread Society. As always, some safety reminders. Lock your door, close your windows, cover your mirrors, and light up a little bit of that protective tobacco with us. Tonight, we are back yet one more time with everybody's favorite, Daddy. How are you tonight? Good evening, everyone. Yes, good evening. And what are we up to tonight? Hello? Oh, okay, I can hear you now. I'm sorry, you're really dipping out. Okay, I'll just go. Oh my god. Can you hear me right now, Daddy? Yes, no? Hello? Oh, okay. I think I know what's going on. Okay, let's try. Welcome back to the Scarlet Thread Society. As always, some warnings for your own safety. Lock your door, close your windows, cover your mirrors, and light a little bit of that protective tobacco with us. We are back. I am joined once again by everybody's favorite, Daddy. Say good morning. Hello, everyone. I hope you're having a lovely day. And what are we talking about tonight? Carlisle Group, the infamous investment firm. First founded in 1987 in everyone's favorite location, Washington, D.C., our alleged soon-to-be 51st state, released a fascinating paper for their investor conference. And this is about, oh my goodness, eight, nine months later now, from September 2022, titled The Pit and the Pendulum, and the second I found this on one of my more interesting deep dives, I immediately sent it to you because I thought this is wonderful and fascinating and is extremely relevant to events we're currently watching unfold and I think helps illuminate some of the underlying causes and the thought process behind the people involved. So we'll, when we get into the content, we'll see a little bit of this. Mm-hmm. But what do you think was going through their heads when they decided to name it the pit and the pendulum? Well, as we all know, uh, our beloved Edgar Allan Poe wrote a, a fascinating short story in the 19th century uh, filled with a sense of foreboding and dread. Yet at the end, there is uh, a savior, a, a machine from above and I believe it's possible that they're alluding to this idea that even in a moment of great peril, which they acknowledge is unfolding, that perhaps a, a magical being or force will appear to save everyone from imminent doom. We could speculate on all sorts of things. It could be a, another economy. It, 
it could be the uh, this is the dirty word now the central bank digital currency the CBDC but I'm, I literally just had a chill go through me when you said that. Um, or perhaps an intern in a relatively uh, early year of his literature degree <laughs> chose this. <laughs> but yeah. I think this is very important because Carlyle Group is one of those very interesting entities which has a very large amount of connections to Washington, D.C., and political power players, but in particular, for those who aren't aware, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, uh, was a Carlisle partner from 1997 to 2005. So this isn't just a spurious allegation I'm making. I mean, this is a, an investment firm he worked for for a very long time. And he's also highly entwined with the Bush dynasty and they are also, as many know, involved in Carlisle. So I thought it would be very interesting to delve into the substance of this paper and maybe glean some insight into uh, the thought processes of these uh, masters of the universe who are guiding us down <laughs> into the pits. <laughs> and speaking of that, that's the title of the first section, is it not? Yes. Um, if you. May I, if you don't mind, I would love to read the intro. I thought it was oh, delightful. Oh, sure. it's very good. Yeah. <laughs> so, as we said, this is quite literally titled The Pit and the Pendulum. Danger seemingly lurks in every direction. The Fed has never successfully engineered a 400 basis point fall in inflation rates without triggering recession. Why would this time be any different? Europe finds itself in the midst of an energy crisis for which there is no parallel in the history of advanced economies. China faces an uncertain economic transition driven by demographic decline and high-tech ambition. U.S. policymakers view suspiciously. Many developing economies sit in their most precarious position in decades, buffeted by shortages of food, fuel, and U.S. dollars. Investors are understandably anxious, with elevated implied and realized volatility across rates, credit, and equity market. A sense of foreboding might protect investors from some of these immediate risks, but also degrade polio portfolio performance over time. Oh no, polio performance. <laughs> this is what I was reading about earlier, uh, deep into polio. That's a whole other topic. Today's challenges represent the aftershocks of pandemic and policy-inflected earthquakes. They will fade. Left in their wake will be memories of the fragility they revealed, inadequate and insecure energy supplies, over-engineered supply chains and globalized production processes that prioritize efficiency at the expense of resilience. Efforts to remediate these deficiencies could unlock trillions of dollars of capital deployment opportunities over the next several years, leading to higher investment rates and stronger growth than widely understood. So we were taken on quite the journey from total doom to total opportunity in a Three paragraphs by someone who had clearly stayed up very late at night searching for inspiration for the uh, Carlyle Group 2022 Investor Conference. You know, I just want to say I think it was extremely cowardly of whoever they charged with writing this. 
that they said policy inflected and mm. not policy inflicted. <laughs> yeah, it's that's a very I'm very glad you picked that up. Yeah, every word in this paper fascinated me. Um and as you said, this leads into the first section, which they quite literally titled The Pit. And I think this is the world that we are currently watching unfold. Um, again, as I stated, you know, Jerome Powell, who is our in charge of the Federal Reserve, worked at Carlisle. He came out of the world of private equity. He does not have an economics degree. His degree is in politics, and he has a Juris Doctorate. You know, he's a lawyer and a politician which is also an incredibly fascinating turn to me. And his entrance into politics was actually for G.H.W. Bush as, um, I believe it was Undersecretary of the Treasury. Yeah, Undersecretary of the Treasury for, I think it's there's a technical term, domestic finance. So he is so a Carlisle and Bush boy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his flowchart then is Bush Senior, a <laughs> mm-hmm. little bit of time off, Carlisle, Federal Reserve. Yeah, he then went back into private equity and like green funding, and then Donald J. Trump. Well, I'm sorry. So he went in back into private industry and then green financing very early on in like 2010. Then President Barack Obama nominated him for, for the board. And then Donald Day, and and I believe it was 2012 that he started his tenure. Then Donald J. Trump nominated him and his tenure started 2018. And then he's continued on as chairman since then. So he's had many years, which is also, I think, an important point to make. He was here before the coronavirus crisis. He was in charge right when the original yield curve inversion occurred in, in 2019, which tends to predicate recession. So he has watched this through this entire time. And I always think it's important to put in the context of, oh, well, I know, I understand as people say, well, the Federal Reserve is technically a public-private entity, but I, it's presumably also presented to the public as, oh, these are just, you know, public servants doing their best for you. But he <laughs> he's very much aligned with private equity and, and private interests in capital. And I think that's really important for the public to know who these people, I mean, I, I think he's one of the most powerful people in the world at the moment. And I'd also like to temper that with, of course, I understand and I know many people do that. Even if we pretend like he's making this decision, you know, these decisions are made by more than one person. And I don't think there's anything he's doing that hasn't been approved by a much larger group of people. Absolutely. I could not have put that better myself. And then. So, with mm-hmm. that in mind, then. Yes. What do we really, really know about Powell? Like, we just did his biography a little mm-hmm. bit. But I guess I just want to clear this up for listeners. What do we actually know about him philosophically? You know, under the presumption that he were making any of these choices mm-hmm. himself, 
himself, rather, what would that imply about him? Well, it's fascinating because part of the reason that he's been nominated and worked across multiple administrations and both Democrat and Republican presidents is this idea that, oh, he's cautious. You know, he cautioned against some aspects of the financial response to the great financial crisis and saying he cautioned against certain actions that some people felt were too bold. Yet at the same time, he's been one of the most pro-capital and extremely um, aggressive Fed I mean, chairs we've had in a very long time. Um, there's a, a finance mechanism uh, in repos that have also been called the Greenspan puts after <laughs> Alan Greenspan's uh, infamous ventures in the financial industry. And what Jerome Powell has done since coronavirus is essentially Greenspan puts on absolute steroids. And as I like to point out, you know, 2020 the year that supposedly the world ended and we were in this dire emergency and everyone had to do their part. It, it was the record-breaking year for private investment. Everyone came out making trillions that year after trillions had been approved to be quote-unquote not technically printed. I mean, it was a massive wealth transfer. So he's always really veered towards, to me, benefiting capital and power. And of course, he's an Alpha Club member. He tends to make decisions that even if they maybe appear to be against the grain, he still always goes with the grain of business. So I'm very cautious around him and around his motivations. And that said, I understand it's a very, very difficult and complicated job, but I don't necessarily see him as any sort of revolutionary force or any threat to the status quo. I think some things he does can appear to be, but I think it's more an obscured plan, which is moving towards a very different direction than a lot of people assume. That is certainly how they tried to present him when he was first up for the nomination, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Some sort of radical, someone who is really going to shake up the board and change things? Mm Mm-hmm. And he's, I mean, you know, at the same time, I'm cautious, but factually, he's presided over the largest wealth transfer in history, the largest upwards wealth transfer in history. So I I don't think I'm being unfair. Yeah, I don't think it's unfair. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was the largest upwards wealth transfer in history. So that's why I'm also, you know, that that's what it is. And, um, he expanded upon a lot of facilities that benefit a very small percentage of the population and that have not just years, but decades of consequences for the vast majority of the population. All right. Thank you for walking us through that. Like I said, I think it's just important to know who we're dealing with here as mm-hmm. we actually get into it. And then, um, I mean, the first section, I thought this was fascinating, is the, the first sentence is disinflation and its discontents. Some argue, and this felt pointed towards me, they're calling me out. Some argue the feared U.S. recession already arrived. And I would say yes. <laughs> It has. Um, the 
10-year, two-year yield curve inverted again, first in April of 2022. And if you go past, um, if you go based on historical cycles, a recession always follows six to 24 months after the initial 10-year, two-year yield curve inversion. And historically, a recession tends to get called after you're in a recession. It's like a very funny quirk of how it all works. Um, and the 10-year, two-year... Well, a funny quirk or an intentional <laughs> misleading of us. And, you know, it's, um, it's a very good prognosticator of recession. The last time the 10-year, two-year inverted was the end of summer 2019. And six months later, we had coronavirus recession. So it it has many times provided to be a highly accurate uh, prognosticator. For one more distraction for us here. Yes. The people in the audience who might just be tuning in, haven't heard some of your other work or aren't following you on Twitter yet. When you post the graphs with all those pretty gray <laughs> bands on them, yes. that's what we're talking about, correct? Exactly. There. Is it's called the Treasury Yield Spread, and you have the 10 year, two year, and the 10 year, three month. And of course, there are others. The, the 10 year, two year specifically has always been a very good prognosticator of recessions. And you, as I said, you get you tend to get a recession six to 24 months after that inverts. So that is the spread dips below zero. And if anyone has followed me, I tend to post this chart a lot with gray bands. Um, at the end of each day, the Federal Reserve posts it. And this is available for anyone. You can go to just Fred. They, St. Louis Federal Reserve, they post everything online for anyone to access. You, you don't need to pay. There are plenty of sites that charge you to pay. But I always want to tell people, there are plenty of government-free, available government resources for all of this information. I Sometimes I get accused of, you know, nothing, everything I post, I'm posting that anyone can access. And I think that's really important. And this is your country and your future, so it should be free. You can look that's this up. That's one of up. the reasons I enjoy working with you so much, because that's also one of my core principles on this show, too. <laughs> I never say anything. I never make any claim that I can't back up with a piece of documentation somewhere and further a piece of documentation that other people can get to. So, yes. Very important. So, this 10 year, two year, and 10 year, three month, you can look it up each day. Usually it's posted by like 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, it's a very good indicator of economic health. Um, and the 10 year, three year is. 10 year, sorry, 10 year, three month curve is also a very good prognosticator of recession. And in this, this April, April, 2023, we have reached the record low. Uh, the lowest it got was minus 1.73, which I know that's kind of hard to say out of context, but you can look up 10 year, three month yield spread and um, you will see that Minus 1.73 is a pretty serious inversion and is quite literally a new record low. So, you know, I'm very cautious because I understand people say, oh, this is doomsday, this is that. But these are 
numbers and historical cycles that have occurred time and time again. And I do think it's useful to have some basis to start from. And according to historical cycles, and it's always possible to beat history, I don't pretend it isn't, but according to historical cycles, we're headed for something quite serious. Um, And these inversions happened before the This is also something I want to point out. I don't want to go too off topic, but in 2001, we had a recession. And I know there are many very young people who may have not even been born in 2001, but (laughs) the 2001 recession was not a result of 9-11, which I think is a, a common belief. The 2001 recessions are in spring of 2001. Um, and we had a yield curve, curve inversion, which preceded that. So again, you know, it's important that we get the historical context right. Um, 2001 recession was not all due to 9-11. There was already a recession. And then after 9-11, there were a series of stimulus put in place that really did help buoy the economy. Um, we had these yield curve inversions before the great financial crisis. We had them before the early 90s crisis. We had them in the the double recession, which occurred in the early 1980s. You had a, a recession in 1980, and then you had a, another recession in 1981 and 82. And the yield curve inversion even worked for that because before the initial 1980 recession, you had the yield curve inversion. It bounced up. Then it inverted again, and people said, no way, you can't have another recession, just whatever, 18 months later. And then we did. We went into recession again. So it's proven time and time again to be quite accurate, which is why I feel confident in frequently mentioning it and um, think it's important to use as a barometer. Again, it can always you can always beat a historical cycle, but it's also prudent to consider, well, most likely we're following it. And another, I think, important data point that backs this up is after the 10-year, two-year inverts, there's that six to 24-month window. A recession tends to be about one year. So when the the 10-year, two-year initially inverted in April 2022, I said, okay, so we really need to look at that target date of April 1st, 2023, which is also start of quarter two of 2023. And then we saw across March, you had all of these bank failures. And then they put in extraordinary measures, which almost ironically got glossed over because they didn't want people to think they were taking extraordinary measures. The Federal Reserve started a new, basically emergency lending facility for banks, which included the fact that it would be kept private until one year later, which banks accessed it. And they started to unwind all of the progress they had made on quantitative tightening, which was an effective version of quantitative easing because it, again, it shot up, it added liquidity. So the the Federal Reserve asset balance went from like 8.3 trillion back up to like 8.7 trillion so they added in a couple hundred billion dollars. And those were actually pretty massive interventions. And I think without those interventions, we would have, and I believe this is why they did them, there would have been recession like April 1st, 2023. But of course, since they never want me to be right, they had to intervene with all sorts of <laughs> exotic financial <laughs> instruments 
But now I'm afraid we're at the point where we're pushing it off. And now we have, as we saw today, now more big failures. And I'm concerned that the longer it is fobbed off, um, the more severe the crisis could be that results. Very good. That was very data heavy. (laughs) Yes. That was everything I could have asked for about that and a little more besides. But it's very important that the audience know just what we're talking about, though, when we start talking about that stuff. At some point, we should probably get back to disinflation and its discontents here. Yes. keep derailing us. That's on me, but thank you. I have I have the paper pulled up. I, I can continue on if you would like that. I would very much appreciate it. Thank you. So as they discuss in Section 1, The Pit, some people say the recession already is here. I think they make a very interesting point after this. The problem was not any weakness on businesses' top line, but that too much of the strength was attributable to price increases rather than underlying growth in business volumes. This is that sticky inflation that plenty of people swear isn't a problem or it doesn't exist, but at the same time, in, in the data, we watch the effects of this entrenched inflation. And then this can create distortions because you can say, well, look, the numbers are still up. But if they're not only up because there is still this same extreme upward price pressure and not because there's a change in volume, that actually is an indicator that you do have this entrenched inflation problem. Then they go on to say, Inflation is often equated to cost pressure and therefore assumed to be bad for margins and profitability. The best way to hedge inflation risk, it was said, was to buy the best businesses which would be able to pass those cost increases on to the customers. As it turns out, this has been exactly backwards. When consumer prices are escalating rapidly, everyone seems to be able to push price through. Pricing power morphs from a rare attribute into something enjoyed and exploited by many businesses. And I thought this was fascinating because this is one of those phenomena where there are a lot of people who claim this is you know, a conspiracy or that it's not true. And as they're pointing out, yes, and it's because we have pumped over the span of not just the past few years, but since the great financial crisis. Over a decade. For 15 years, central banks have been printing money and just throwing in liquidity, which creates these distortions. And this is why I get frustrated. These are not free market economies. These are top-down controlled economies. And, you know, most of the arguments people have, they're based on a reality that quite literally doesn't exist. And I think it doesn't get us anywhere. And this is why we get in these like vicious circles arguing over a set of presumptions about reality that that don't exist. And then what's fascinating is the next paragraph they say, the Fed's job is to take this indiscriminate pricing power away. Tighter <laughs> financial conditions and elevated recession fears combine to depress inflation expectations and price 
wage pressures by quarter two. 2022. These gains appeared threatened by a stock market rebound premised on a Fed pivot to rate cuts in 2023. Powell was wise to tamp down such ta- expectations at Jackson Hole. I like how they just refer to the Jackson Hole conference. They just call it Jackson Hole. Like it's the finite short speak. Because it's true. This is where the decisions are made. Um, this is an well, annual I think conference. Know the only people reading this already know exactly what that is. Exactly. Right? Uh, the forward curve looks much more reasonably priced, but you know, these are all things. It's I just get so frustrated. Maybe I'm I'm being too self centered, but I get called a liar over so many things that are directly written by those in power that it just makes me occasionally feel quite frustrated. But as they're saying, this is we've created these special facilities. We've added trillions of dollars in liquidity to the economy, and you have money supply that's through the roof. And yes, it gave corporations basically the power to price whatever they want because there's just all of this money sloshing around, and it has completely distorted the economy. And you can tell at the same time, like they're trying to say, we can deal with this, but obviously they know that this could also have a very, very, very rough landing because you can't just unwind all of these things overnight. Well, that's the thing too, right? There's Mm -hmm. genuinely no way to shut this off. Yep. There's no getting off this ride. There's just not. Yeah. Too much for too long. And they even say disinflation will prove both welcome and painful. Falling inflation necessarily means that fewer businesses will be able to raise prices without losing sales. Some will have to cut prices to prevent customer defections. Revenue growth will slow materially, narrowing margins and leaving some businesses struggling to support their cost base. But all of this looks fairly conventional. The more exotic risk of a chaotic inflationary spiral seems contained. So famous last words of September (laughs) 2022. It's extremely funny to me, that paragraph you're looking at there. (laughs) It's some will have to cut prices. Revenue growth will slow. These are things that none of this conversation would have even been happening if the funny money, we weren't drowning in it, right? Yep. Yep. I know in our series together, I've used this saying before, but it's a real pigs get fed, hogs get slaughtered situation, Ooh, right? Like yes. Just contain yourself even just a little bit, and your business would have been doing fine this whole time. And then as we see, as you're indicating, this is where the, the paper starts getting dark. The next page, shortages of food, fuel, and dollars in developing economies. And this is what always is so personally upsetting to me. It's just like the suffering of billions is just this afterthought. And, oh, this makes our plans slightly less convenient and a little tricky. Like they aren't engineering mass human suffering. They say the more resolute the Fed, the stronger the dollar. And the stronger the dollar, the lower the domestic value of U.S. corporations, foreign sales and earnings. And the more expensive it is for businesses and households in the rest of the world. You know, the rest of the world. Like, aka 99% of the world. 
everywhere else. It is for businesses and households to buy things denominated in dollars, which in a dollarized global economy is virtually every primary economy, primary commodity. Developing economies with sufficient domestic supplies of food and energy to meet domestic demands should be fine. Unfortunately, there's a long list that does not meet this criteria, including Sri Lanka. In the months ahead, many such economies may have no choice but to seek financial support from the IMF and multilateral lenders, a process that heightens near-term uncertainty given the likely restructuring of existing debt and domestic belt belt tightening typically mandated as part of the package. So in those two two paragraphs... mm -hmm. Two things here for you, Daddy. Yes. First of all, where have we heard the IMF come up here before in our discussion? It's so casual, and we know what this means. This is very bad for many people. And I know you know that too, but it just it gets me each time. Yeah, every time. And the other thing, they make a big deal out of sufficient domestic food and energy. Mm-hmm. But how many nations can we think of between the two of us that truly have both sufficient domestic food and energy. China seems like it fits the bill. They can feed themselves Mm -hmm. when they need to. They've got power. Europe doesn't have power. It's got food. Yep. It's Russia. Africa, depending on where you go, Mm -hmm. doesn't have either of them. Mm -hmm. Canada, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, U.S., China, Russia have a lot of... And the U.S. would have more energy independence, but we, you know, For many reasons. Intentionally choose not to. And then, this is fascinating too, and I'm sure you picked up on this, um, to buy things denominated in dollars, which in a dollarized global economy is virtually every primary commodity, which is exactly why we're witnessing what is a a once-in-a-century event of a move to de-dollarization. Because why? It has been accelerating (laughs) rapidly too in recent months. Mm Mm-hmm. And I understand. I mean, I think people, especially in the USA, forget that the great financial crisis was horrible for much of the world. And i it's only 15 years later. And logically, why should other countries stick by? Why? Why should they stick by the USA, even if there are plenty of benefits, which I will say it's true. There's a reason why the dollar was able to dominate for so long. And it wasn't just because of any one factor. There were a multitude of factors. But the great financial crisis caused a lot of pain and suffering across the world. And only 15 years later, we're crashing again. I mean, there's a lot of very serious moves to say, hey, we should get off the dollar. And what are the options now? And options are emerging and being presented to them by other countries, i.e., Russia, China, BRICS is not a joke. I'm still shocked at how many people treat BRICS like a joke. It's not a joke at all. It's very serious. And it's a major block of power. And as we're watching every day, there's more and more people looking to align with them. There is, but I do think it's fair to say that they're probably not there yet. Oh, yeah, no, there's still a long process. Potential. You know, people often, 
the S on bricks is South Africa, and look what's going on there right now, right? I just think, especially what we're going to watch over the next year with Europe and Ukraine and Russia crisis, because the real energy crisis, as they said before, it's fall and winter 2023 and 2024 that are the true test of Europe. They were kind of able to get ahead of the crisis and fill up their storage last summer for winter of 2022 and 2023. But as the crisis continues, if the U.S. really wants to say we want to cut off these energy sources and Europe continues to bleed out funds because it grew on such cheap energy for so long, that as we watched winter 2023 to winter 2024 and we watched the genesis of the Taiwan crisis, which all of the planners, I mean, I have magazines I've saved from like 2016, 2017, where they say it's going to be 2025 is the determining year for what <laughs> happens with Taiwan because the military games and all the simulations said 2025 is the year. And as we get closer to it, it becomes pretty solidified that things I even read 10 years ago, they're really following exactly on track in terms of unfolding of various both um, political, economic, and uh, weapons layers. Just as a side note, it's really remarkable to me how perfectly they can predict stuff like that, and yet everyone is always blindsided by domestic issues. Yeah. <laughs> You know, quote unquote, blind side. Yeah, I uh, I don't have any answer besides resignation to that one. Well, I've got an answer, <laughs> but I think my audience already knows what my answer is. So, and then going in Europe's energy maelstrom, rich economies can also find themselves short on energy. Yeah, we 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 see that. This is dovetailing perfectly into what we were just talking. Over the past decade, European domestic natural gas production declined by minus 63%, while gas consumption rose 2%. One can imagine what this disjunction means for European energy security, especially when imports from Russia were supposed to fill the gap. Over the past year, gas prices have risen 10 times, and increase in forward electricity prices has been even more dramatic. So... And forward prices, for those who are unfamiliar, that's just a lot of contracts and energy contracts are based on future time, like what the price is three months, six months, one year out. That's what a lot of contracts are predicated on. Yep. But as they're saying, I mean, we're only at the start of the European energy crisis. Only at the start. As Personal they... question, then, mm -hmm. perhaps, how bad do you think it ends up getting? Well, we'll see what happens with the the latest Russian offense and Ukrainian counteroffensive. I, I feel like they have to make a deal before fall. But if they don't, it could be really bad in the winter. But I feel like even just as like a layman's observation, I mean, the media coverage has significantly... <laughs> I mean, I feel like we've noticed in the past even few weeks, past months too, I mean, it's really calmed down a lot from constant talks of Russia crumbling, war, et cetera, to almost quiet, 
which I suppose is a sign they know it's kind of serious at the moment. But the big there thing was that whole flap earlier today, though, about the missile waves. Yeah, that may or may not have happened. Yeah, the only news account I saw talking about it couldn't figure out if it had actually happened or not, which I also no. thought was odd. But I mean, yeah, it's what happens in this. Russian offensive and Ukrainian counteroffensive will pretty much determine fall and winter of 2023-2024. But Russia hasn't. A lot has been said and estimated about their losses, both in military personnel, military capability, and economic capability, but they've been very resilient, and this isn't a pro-Russia or anti-Ukraine observation. It's like the reality of it, They're, the ruble has survived and they have moved a lot of supply chains to Asia. They continue to. BRICS is going country to country, making new deals. And as we see, I mean, this came out, I noticed uh, it was just two days ago where they said, oh, uh, India is <laughs> the largest importer of you know, Russian oil, and they're the largest refiner that sells it to Europe. I mean, it's all just, all the energy is being laundered. It's Russia's making incredible amounts of money. And, you know, overall demand, and they talk about this in this paper too, you know, overall demand for energy isn't going down at all. It only goes up. So if I can quote the numbers it gives us. Mm -hmm. Over the past decade, European domestic natural gas production declined 63%. While consumption rose 2%. Yeah. And this is, I mean, uh, I don't want to go too off topic because this happens in the U.S. everywhere. You know, if you don't decrease energy consumption, you know, we're, we're on a closed planet system at the current time. So it just comes from somewhere else. And if you sanction vast swaths of the world's energy, it has to come from somewhere else, and oftentimes it can just be simply relabeled, and then it's magically able to transfer across borders. You know, if there's no, if there's only increasing energy demand, then you're just going to have an increasingly large energy market, and it has to come from somewhere. Which has been one of the core thrusts of your thesis across all these episodes we've done together. It comes back to energy, yeah. which yes. has to come from somewhere. Yes. And I don't see asteroid mining making any great strides in the next 12 months. So it must come from Russia. We're not making very much progress on the Iran deal. You know, the U.S. wanted to tell the world, you must cut off Venezuela, you must cut off Iran. Oh, you must cut off Russia. Uh, but also we want free market, forever growth economies and highly financialized Europe and Japan and U.S. I mean, it's very silly. It's very silly. So now we're in this predicament that is entirely of her own creation. Anyway, I don't I don't want to get too, too far off. So, Carlisle, back yes. to the pit. The pendulum. Oh, let's move to the pendulum. Let's do it. The pitfalls facing investors' portfolios and are hardly imagined, but sober assessment of current risks must be wedded to an honest appraisal of likely macroeconomic dynamics over the medium t term. Worries about a sustained economic downturn seem displaced 
contractions tend to be caused by overcapacity, where negative returns on the last increment of capital cause economy-wide investment rates to drop as companies shed assets and payrolls to shrink their footprint and cut their losses. This seems to be the opposite of the problems we face today, which stem largely from underinvestment in the decade preceding the pandemic. So I feel like what they're trying to argue, and as they literally say in the next, is that this is related to the great financial crisis and the great financial crisis bubble, where they also simultaneously address the exact problem with the money printing of the great financial crisis, where they simply injected all of this liquidity and then the banks and everyone held on to it and they didn't actually distribute it. It's like Reagan's trickle-down economics. The argument for quantitative easing is, well, we inject... Um, so quantitative easing, the money goes to primary dealers and then the primary dealers distribute it through the financial system. And the theory is, is as you add liquidity, so you add dollars to the system, it's going to be lent out and they're going to use it to build things and they're going to use it to make loans and then businesses will grow. But what happens is the money just gets trapped and as we can see in the data, this is why since the great financial crisis, the wealth gap has just galloped. Exploded. So now you have this hyper concentration of wealth in a smaller and smaller percent of the population. And this happens in tandem with, you can also, these are all, um, this is all data you can look up since the Citizens United ruling in 2009, where you can say that, well, corporations have free speech and free speech is money and campaign money. So you have the people who have this, who are able to hold on to this wealth, also are able to use that wealth to influence political elections and purchase politicians. So it creates a feedback loop of hyper-concentrated wealth and power that to me is just anathema to democracy and very frustrating. But this is also simply proven because we have had, since Citizens United, these super PAC spending, I mean, these elections are costing so much money and you're able to very easily influence outcomes. And if you can write a large enough check and you can write as much as you want because that's your right to free speech, and, you know, it's not these, I never understood the argument because, you know, the corporation, the money is coming from the people who are at the top. You know, there's not a vote. Everyone in the corporation vote who we're going to direct campaign donations to and which politician, which super PAC. It's the people at you the know, top. You know, even if that were the case, it would mm -hmm. still be asinine at best yeah. because a corporation just simply isn't a person. Yeah, I, I've never been able to reconcile any of the logic, and I've tried to. I would like to because I could believe in things that I want to believe in, but it's pretty depressing when you realize that there is essentially a coup that occurred. And I don't see us recovering from it without extremely significant reforms across not just campaign financing, but the allocation of capital markets. Among many other things. Mm. Yes.
Oh no, we're running to the problem where it's been an hour and I've only gotten halfway through. (laughs) (laughs) It's wild how often that seems to happen to us, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I suppose, you know, it's better to have easy rolling conversation than it's a better problem to have than a difficult and arduous conversation. Absolutely. Um, I can keep going for a little bit if you'd like to, or we can put it in wraps for, say, next Monday. Yeah, I think we should do that because there's so many fine specific points that I, I hope other people would be interested in, and I have several pages, so I'd rather... I think this is perfect. We're right at the halfway mark. Excellent. Audience, you did not just hear me discussing the recording schedule live on air. <laughs> that did not happen. Thank you for joining me again, Daddy. I'll be in touch about wrapping this up with you. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day, everybody. You as well.